Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Mary Wilson of The Supremes is our guest, and this interview came together quite quickly. She had a gig in Staten Island on a Saturday, and I think I heard on Thursday or Wednesday night maybe, are you interested in interviewing Mary Wilson? I said yes, and then they got back to me. So I had less than a day to prepare for this. Usually I would try to read a guest's book. In this case, she's written many books or do a bunch of research, but I I threw it together pretty quickly. It turned out she was a person who, at least I'm guessing, I'm putting this together from the clues I received during the interview, uh, a lady who's been interviewed a million times and didn't really want to, she kind of wanted to keep, she wanted to drive the train and and not let me drive the train, Uh, but I tried to keep it on the tracks and tried to move it in my direction. Uh, I think you can hear a little bit of that push and pull in this interview. It's very edited. Uh, I took out a lot of things that didn't, where no one was driving the train, which might have been interesting, but not professional to hear. Uh, So I I think it's interesting. I, I mean, the story of Motown is so important. And as I was putting together the notes for this, I was listening to the Supremes recordings and 12 number one hits. When you listen to them back to back, as I did, wow, it really is almost like a genre to itself. That sort of amazing Motown groove, those great songs, the production, the vocal performances, just the, the, the way it sounds, just the way that recording studio sounded and the way those guys played. It's really something so unique and you can see why it just drove people crazy uh just great music so uh one of you know the most important bands on one of the most important american labels ever uh so i was happy to get a little insight into that and i would sort of love to have her back uh, maybe under different circumstances uh anyway mary wilson super interesting hope you enjoyed this uh and i will talk to you soon have a great summer etc Okay, folks, there is the Supremes, and tonight at the St. George Theater in Staten Island, uh, Mary Wilson will be uh, doing a show with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Big news. There's information on MaryWilson.com, but we've got the uh, the human being right here. Good morning, and welcome to the program. Yes, good morning to you, Michael. Uh, you are the longest-serving member of the Supremes. You are an author, an advocate, a performer, and I, I was, you know, kind of doing some reading and some listening, and it seems like this is about the 60th year you've been singing. Is that about right? Uh, I think so, because we started singing uh, in 1959. And, uh, yeah, it probably, I, I'm not, I wasn't very good at math. I was great in, 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 in all my music classes and my English class I was really cool in, too. In fact, that's the reason why I, I wrote, I have written, actually, uh, three books. And the reason why I bring that up is that it was my English teacher in high school that suggested I become a writer. So what I did was I, I, I wrote this really wonderful uh, paper, uh, I guess you call it a thesis or something like that, and passed it in. He gave me an A++++, and he said, Miss Wilson, I think that you should consider becoming a writer because you write so well. And that's when I started keeping my diaries, and now I have, I have four books. 
because of my English teacher. So anyway, I saw him years later, and he says, "Miss Wilson, I'm so happy that you didn't take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way you did, right? Because you've got your books and yeah. your career. Uh, yeah. So that's great. Yeah. So, so you grew up, you mentioned you grew up in Detroit, and uh, you yeah. grew up in the mm-hmm. very well-known Brewster Douglas public housing projects, which were sort of later blown up uh, to some mm-hmm. people's happiness. But, but mm-hmm. t- So those sort of had a darker reputation as time went on, but when you were living there, when you were growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, was it, uh, what were your memories? Was it a place of a community or was it uh, this kind of dark Oh, place? are you kidding? Let me tell you. Detroit was one of those places that was just fabulous. I mean, we had great communities. Of course, everything was segregated. You know, you had your, your, your Polish people in one area, you had your black people in another area, you had your white in another area, and it was all segregated. But still, people were really happy together. You know what I mean? It was really great. We had great, the school system, the educational system there was fabulous. We had great, great schools there. And it was fun. I mean, when I moved in, when I moved into the projects, it was a whole new development that we grew, went to. And it was like having a, a new apartment building. You know what I mean? <laughs> so projects have gotten a very bad reputation or name. But basically, we had a great upbringing in, in Detroit. I mean, we went, I went to Aretha Franklin's uh, father's church. I, I, so I used to see Aretha Franklin sing very early on in life before she became famous. <laughs> so, you know, we, it was, Detroit was a great city. And I got to tell people is that Detroit is coming back, okay? It may not ever be as great as it used to be, but it's coming back, and I'm so thrilled about that. Uh, I know that you knew Florence Ballard from elementary school. You guys sang in talent mm-hmm. shows. There was a group called The Primes, a, a bunch of guys. And in 1959, they wanted to make sort of a female counterpoint, The Primettes. And mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. when the earliest version uh, of The Supreme sort of came along with Diana Ross and Betty McGlown. And uh, you guys started making records pretty early. I, I, I guess, am I right? The first Primettes record is Pretty Baby 1960, which would make you 16 years old. Is that right? We were about about 15 uh, because we signed our first contract with Motown uh, in 1961, I think it was January. So when we were 15, we actually started recording before Motown. And there were four of us. There were four girls. We were a quartet. We were called the Primates, and as you mentioned, the other guys were the Primes. But two of those guys went on to become the Temptations, and that's Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams. So they were the Primes, and they joined Otis uh, Williams and became the Temptations. So, yeah, yeah, we started, you know, recording very early on, but then we realized that, you know, we wanted to be at Motown. So we left this Lupine Records. So we went to Motown, auditioned for Mr. Gordy. He turned us down uh, because at the point time we were just barely 15 and a half or so. And, uh, but instead of going away, we stayed there. We, we, when I say stayed there, every day after school, we would go and, and sit on the lawn and wait and wave at all the stars going in. And uh, pretty soon they said, you know what, these girls look like they really want to be here, so they signed us up. Huh. And there you go. That's the history. If you listen to those, you know, the Primettes uh, recording mm-hmm. and the early, mm-hmm. like the very first Supremes, Tears of Sorrow, mm-hmm. it definitely yeah. sounds, it definitely has a foot in the 1950s more than in the 1960s. But in the next few years, that the Supreme sound really evolves pretty quickly. And do you, you know, the, the, of course, the Supremes ended up having 12 number one hits, 33 top 40 hits. Do you remember 
actually seeing it, feeling the sound evolve? Basically, we came from the doo-wop area. And, uh, you know, that did have, you know, people like the Flamingos and, and the Platters and, I mean, all kind of people who were recording. That's who we were, you know, not copying, but that's who inspired us. Mm. You know, because you had the Shirelles, you had the Chantels, you had all those people. And uh, so our sound uh, early on was more of that early 50s sound because that's, you know, who we were listening to. However, when we went to Motown, then, of course, they the Motown sound was also evolving. And when Mr. Barry Gordy put us with his uh, top writing team, Holland Dozier Holland, which was Eddie and Brian Holland and Lamont Dozier, that's when our sound really changed because they had a different style of writing and producing. And that, that's how we got our first, uh, you know, 10 number one records, and I, yeah. which was a rarity because, you know, that's when the, uh, the British guys were coming over here. And not just guys, because you got people like uh, Dusty Springfield who were coming over here, Dave Clark Five, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones. In fact... I don't know. We were on a show with the Rolling Stones in 1964 called, it was by Dick Clark Productions, and it was called Tammy, the Tammy Show. And that's when we first met the Rolling Stones, who were not really famous at the time. And uh, there was this big dispute over who was going to close the show, James Brown or the Rolling Stones. Well, at the time, James Brown was the king, and the Rolling Stones were not as well known. And we all were uh, talking about, well, who's going to close the show? You know, how in the world can these, this new group, the Rolling Stones, close after James Brown? And sure enough, you know, James Brown uh, had to, you know, go on before Rolling Stones, and he was not happy about it. So, you know, there's a bit where he throws his cape off and then comes back. Well, he did that like 20 times so that the <laughs> Rolling Stones would not be able to come on. But eventually, you know, he had to get off there, and the Rolling Stones came on, and they just blew the crowd away. Mm-hmm. So, um Bill Wyman, who I wrote, I worked with Bill a lot of the Rolling Stones. He was the original bass player there. And he often talks about, you know, how they were scared to death, too, to come on after James Brown. So those were the good, good, good days. But, you know, like I said, we worked with a lot of those British stars and Dusty Springfield and all. And, yes, our sound became the sound. And, and we were giving the, the British groups a run for their money. You know, the Beatles would have number one, we'd have number two. Then we'd have number one, they'd have number two. Yeah. So. It was one of those things where we were one of the girl groups that really uh, gave them a run for their money. So when you arrive at Motown, Motown is sort of famous for this uh, Motown system, sort of like it was like a factory approach, sort of very Detroit, right? A factory approach to producing this music. You had teams of writers and teams of producers and teams of musicians and folks with the costumes and with stage and with, you know, deportment and uh, sort of charm school classes. Was it really like that? Or was it just that simple? They, they... No, 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 no. It wasn't like that. And people say that, but that's okay because uh, I think every time anyone, if it's a singer whoever it is, you always draw on what became what, you, you you grew up with what you know, so yeah, the factory system was very strong in Detroit, Michigan, uh, because most of our parents all and everyone there worked in the factories. Uh, Barry Gordy had worked in the factory himself, so yeah, that's what that's where people get that from. However, the black community was one such that was so great. Uh, Barry's family was a black family that were very prominent in Detroit, Michigan. They owned stores and this and that, so everything was kind of patterned pattern after our families and, you know, the certain things at Motown. Um, 
Barry's family all were working there. So, you know, a lot of that family situation came from that part of being a part of the family unit. And we all were accustomed to, to that growing up as a black, as, as black family, in black families, I should say. So, you know, we, we all kind of had that. They had the, uh, this school system, we, we called it the artist development where we were learning how to, uh, uh, you know, dress properly, stand properly, and all those kind of things. So we learned that from, you know, uh, people around us. And, and Barry Gordy and, and, the, and, and Motown had the sense to know, um, you know, just like the Hollywood uh, uh, film studios, they, they taught all the stars how to, to become beautiful people. So Motown had that same kind of system, but it was all drawn upon what we all knew and what they knew. So we were very, you know, fortunate to have that type of a system around us. But no one made anyone do anything is what I, I guess I'm trying to say. Uh, it's, it was just one of those things where we wanted to be uh, glamorous and we wanted to be better. So we had a good school system, as I said, even in, in Detroit, Michigan, in, in our schools. Because, you know, now they're taking the arts out of school. Schools, and that's a part of what we learned too. Was in school we had shop, we had home economics, we had driving drivers ed. So we were taught a lot of things from the system, and all that was brought into Motown. And so I'm very pleased about that. And my book, my new book that's coming out, Supreme Glamour, talks about all of that. It talks about how uh, you know we we knew glamour and we wanted to be glamour glamorous and. Uh, uh, we were very fortunate that Motown had that same philosophy. Mm. Let's talk about the very first number one hit, Where Did Our Love Go? Uh, mm -hmm. It's a huge, I mean, it's like the biggest, catchiest track in the world. No way that was not going to be number one. So just let's use this as an example of how you guys made the records. Uh, I, I assume that you sang to a track, not live with the band? In the very beginning, we were so fortunate to actually work and record with the band. Mm. And the band was called the Funk Brothers. They've since become extremely famous. Uh, being There was a movie called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. And so they're talking about the band members. So we actually recorded with the band there in Studio A. And lots of people are now visiting Motown Records. Uh, and they've seen the Studio A, which is very small. <laughs> But back in those days, we didn't know it was, you know, how small it was. But yeah, we were very fortunate to actually uh, record with the band. Where Did I Love Go was one of those songs. Now, let me tell you something about Where Did I Love Go. We did not like that song at all, and uh, it was, uh, did not. You, you mentioned, you, you know, it was a, a, a known fact. It was a number one. Not at the time. We hated the song, and so I recall Eddie Holland saying to us. Just trust us. It's going to be a hit. And we were like, no, but we want to have a hit record. This doesn't sound like a hit record. But it did become our first number one record. And now, of course, I have to eat my words that uh, it, it, <laughs> you know, we didn't like it, but we really didn't. Okay, but the so, world did. So you guys mm -hmm. are singing with, uh, with the band. So how long did it take to get that, that track? Is it a day? Is it a few hours? Well, it's not just that track because we recorded. Uh, we always recorded a number of songs within a day. Right, but but that that particular song. That was one of the easier songs we ever recorded. Some of them would take 
25, 35 tracks. Now, we're talking about the Funk Brothers and the bass player who was uh, Benny Benjamin. Well, we would often watch him. He smoked a cigar. And the whole band and the singers would watch this guy smoke the cigar while he's playing the instrument. So we would have to break and stop the track if we're doing very well. We would have to stop the recording because his ash would fall off and everybody in the studio would die laughing. So that was one of the things that was so great about recording with the band, live band because it was always something special that would happen and we could either go straight through it or we can just burst out and start laughing. And that's what made the tracks so beautiful because you had that spontaneous spontaneity inside the the studio. So that's why I wanted to say that because oftentimes people don't really know what makes Motown sound so great. It's just being there with all the people. So when these guys would bring a song in, would they play it on a piano? Would they run it? How would you first hear the songs? Well, it really, that as well, there was not like one system. There, there definitely were a lot of different ways that we, everyone was approaching recording. Um, many times the guys, I'm speaking about Eddie, Brian, and Lamont, would bring a song to us uh, on a track later, you know, later, not in the very early days. In the early days, most of the time, they would uh, play things on, on the, uh, they would actually play things on, sorry, most of the time, people would act, they would actually play them on the piano. And, but as time evolved, and they would actually sing the parts, too, because Lamont would sing the background parts. Eddie uh, Holland would sing the lead, which was eventually, you know, Diane's part. And then Brian would normally play the piano, or he and Lamont would play the piano. So that would be one way that they would do it. However, later on, let's say when we became very famous and we traveled, we'd have to fly in for a day. And by then they had really started, uh, you know, recording things before we, we would arrive. And uh, so we would hear, the, hear it on the track. So it really depended on, you know, how they approached things at the time. Hmm? 1964, you mentioned the British invasion is going crazy. And mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of American sure. artists kind of lost their career. They just never figured out. It out, but that was for you guys. You know, f- where did our love go? Baby love, come see about me. Stop in the name of love. Back in my arms again. Five number one hits in a row. So the things are, are were blowing up. You're still, you know, a twenty year old young lady. Uh, was this? Did you deal with it well? Did it? Did you go? You know, was it easy or was it just just the pressure? Was that tough? Well, for we the Supremes, it was fairly wonderful, I would say, especially for myself, uh, because we started traveling internationally. And just like here in the States, people loved the British in, uh, invasion, we called it. They took to us the same way, in, in, especially in the U.K. Um, so we were kind of like, you know, the, I remember one newspaper said, three black negresses have just landed on the shores of Great Britain. We're like, where? <laughs> so, you know, we, we were kind of taken over there the same as, as the British invasion was taken here. And I absolutely adored it because I had learned a lot in world history, in, my, in school, about world history, uh, you know, American history and all that stuff. I loved studying. So uh, for me, it was great to go to all these different countries, especially when we went to Sweden 
um, we hung out with the you know the princess of uh, of Sweden and her her brother eventually became the king. Well, they used to come to our show back in 1968. So you know, for for me, this was very exciting. Things I had read about in school and learned in school, and here I am now living that life. Uh, yeah, it was really for me great. You know, some people it depends. You know, if you like enjoy traveling, traveling then was great. Maybe not so much now, but back then, you know, Pan Am and and TWA, American Airlines, it was really great flying. First class was definitely first class, you know. Um, but uh, and the seats were still bigger back then. Yeah. <laughs> the one bad thing is that you people don't know this, but you know they had smoking on the airlines back then, and on a plane, you know, the smoke area would be in the back. So that was kind of bad. But um, you know, traveling was great. I loved it. I loved meeting the different people. Japan was one of my favorite places because you know everyone wore their kimonos, men, women, you know, and and the Ginza, which was downtown area, was just beautiful with all the various colors. So I enjoyed touring and traveling because uh, you know the world was coming, the world was really opening up, the you know, uh, between different countries and continents and all. It was really opening up, and I think our music. Uh, you know, really helped uh, the world open up the way it has, you know, the borders nowadays have opened up where you can travel here, there, travel there. So it was really cool. Yes, I enjoyed it. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was pre- there was a lot of pressure. You mentioned pressure. There was pressure because, you know, you fly in and you had to immediately get on, uh, do interviews and this and that. It was an all-day thing. Uh, and some people, if they didn't enjoy traveling or didn't enjoy meeting people, and some people don't, they have great voices, they just don't really like the people, you know. <laughs> and so for those type of people, it could have been pretty, diff- you know, difficult. But for me, I, I love meeting people. I love the whole bit. So it was mm-hmm. fun. It was fun for me. Still is. After 60-some years. You mentioned that earlier when we started. 60-some years, yeah. Yeah. Let's remind folks that Mary Wilson is our guest and tonight at the St. George Theater in Staten Island with Martha Reeves and the Vandella. And you can get some information over at MaryWilson.com. Uh, 1967, Another String of Hits. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can hurry, love. You keep me hanging on. Love is here. Now you're gone. The happening. It's interesting how the the Supreme Sound evolves a little bit. Were, were these guys listening to what was on the radio and uh, sort of evolving with that, or was it just kind of a natural evolution? Do you think? Well, probably both. Uh, you know, I think it was more sort of uh, knowing what else is being created uh created you know uh, musically that inspired our writers and so i i mentioned holland doja holland because they they uh produced for us but of yeah. course we had Smokey robinson you had steve uh uh you had all these different writers there norman whitfield who wrote for the temptations later on you had many types of writers there so they had a lot of competition between the <laughs> Just the fire. Yeah, right, just the fire out there. <laughs> they had a lot of competition between the writers and the producers, but I don't think there was much competition between the actual artists, the singers, because we just enjoyed singing, you know. Um, so I don't think we were competing as much as perhaps the uh, the writers and the producers did. And all of that, I'm sure, helped uh, them all evolved musically. Now you take Stevie Wonder for for instance, who I think he was one of the first ones who started that uh, synthesizer kind of sound, and he really moved that forward. Um, so you know, 
I think the musicians and people who really were creating the music were the ones who helped move the artists forward. We we no, we just sing songs, you know. I mean, we just singers. But the producers and and writers and musicians are the ones that actually created, you know, the foundation for us to to sing on. Mm. I read Barry Gordy's book a while back, and he sort of really goes out of his way to point out how fair he was about money and how he never, you know, ripped anybody off. And he almost goes like overboard with with that. And in my experience, people who do that are like usually trying to hide something or, you know, it's like the opposite of the truth. But I really wasn't there. You were there. Uh, how did it work with, you know, contracts and money? Were things, you know, did you have a fair wage and did you get paid well, what, you, what you actually earned? Well, I'm going to say this. I'm Pisces. I have two people. <laughs> I'm, I'm two fish swimming in different directions. But first of all, you need to read my book. Then you'll get a whole other concept. However, <laughs> Mr. Gordy is a wonderful man. I mean, and, and, and he said to me, I, Marvin Gaye had an unveiling, not Marvin Gaye, but they unveiled the Marvin Gaye postal stamp here uh, in, U, in the U.S. just recently, and I hosted the whole show. So Mr. I said, to, when I introduced Mr. Gordy, I said, my mentor, Mr. Barry Gordy, he says, I didn't know I was your mentor. I'm like, yeah, I, we wouldn't be here were it not for Barry Gordy's dream of Motown and the Motown sound. So I, you know, I absolutely adore that whole thing. However, contractually, you know, there were things that as artists you look back on now and you say, well, I should have had a higher royalty. So it depends. It all depends on who you talk to, you know, and the time that we're talking about. Because this still was very early on, and uh, you know, with people getting contracts and being paid fairly and that type type of thing. But if you look back and you say, well, you know, maybe we weren't as fairly, uh, uh, the money wasn't, you know, divvied up the way it could have been. But uh, you know, that's the way things are. So read my book, and maybe you'll have another idea of what was going on. What, what, they, what do they say? Uh, uh, ten people can see an accident and you get ten different uh, uh, yeah. people's viewpoints. It's the same kind of thing, but we still should have been paid more. <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, this is right in the, in the middle of the civil rights era. Was there mm -hmm. a Motown company policy, like we should address this as, as artists, as a company, or we should stay away from this and just entertain people? Where, what, where Was there an official policy? Oh, that was never an official policy. I think it, it had a lot to do with uh, people's individual uh, thoughts. However, we were a lot of us were very young, so politics in those days, in the early 60s, was not as prominent in the, in the communities as it is now. You know, everyone has a definite viewpoint. You either Democrats or Republicans or da-da, you know what I mean? But back then, uh, it, it wasn't as, uh, as uh, you know, systematically uh, noted that you had to be this or that. However, um, the one thing that was probably within the community, especially the black community, was that our parents would always tell us, whenever you walk out the door, because you're black, you have to always put your best foot forward. That was perhaps the m most important thing that our parents taught us. And, and they also taught us to hold our head up high. But in terms of politics, um, you know, it wasn't, everyone wasn't speaking out in terms of what they were thinking. The only thing was that blacks had to move forward. Education was the most important thing. And you know what? It still is today, mm. and it's almost not as prominent as it sh as as it was back then, and it should be.
Yeah, I totally agree with you. 1967, Barry Gordy changes the name of the band to Diana Ross and the Supremes. It's, I know she was the lead singer. She got a lot of attention. I'm sure it's in your book, but tell us, how. To, I mean, how did you feel? How did that go over with you? Well, the thing about that is uh, I, I think it not only happened to the Supremes, but it happened to a lot of different groups. Um, you know, if you can look at uh, um, the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, originally it was the Miracles. You can look at a lot of different groups that had the name change. Obviously, it never is something that uh, people are like, oh, okay, you know, uh, fine. With our group, we had we we had our own whatever. We were happy that Mr. Gordy and Motown chose the Supremes to be their number one. We were very happy about that. And that, you know, one of us had to be chosen. We were happy about that, too, as long as he chose us as a group to, to put their money behind us, per se. Um, perhaps over time, it came a point where, because we all were singers, we weren't, we didn't start out as one lead singer and background singers, you know, so we never thought of ourselves as background singers. So, you know, it was kind of, in the beginning, it was fine. Uh, it became a time when, as an individual and as a singer, well, you didn't want to sing more. It's like, oh, I look like I'm not going to get that part then, you know. <laughs> so you did have that kind of feeling, but because we were all friends, in the beginning, uh, you know, no one ever, ever, ever hated the other. It was always just about love. Yeah. Uh, but as an individual, I guess, you know, eventually it's things like that start to eat away if you can't do everything that you want to do uh, as an individual. So I, I, I did, and I did address that uh, in my book as well. Uh, around this time, you know, the end of the 60s, Florence quits. She's like your oldest, old friends. Holland, Dozier, Holland, leave. And, like, you, you look at the uh, the Supremes catalog, and there's records like you guys singing Funny Girl in 1968, you know, right after uh, Holland, Dozier, Holland, leave. You, and, and you're on the, you know, the, I think was the idea that the Supremes would appeal to the, a huge group, and that's why you did, you know, those kind of records? Well, we always did, though. See, that's what a lot of people don't know. Even as the primates, we started out singing four-part harmony, which meant we sang a lot of songs that were not rock and roll. They were not doo-wops. They were uh, like the American Songbook. We sang yeah. a lot of standards as a group. We always did. So when we became famous, obviously we started singing the rock and roll and the Holland Dozier Holland, the Motown Sound, which people knew us for. But we also had this other side to us that where we did sing those type songs so when we started doing tv shows we we started showing that we could do those songs and that's when those albums and songs became known to the public that we could do uh we did uh um not only the funny girl album but we did a country and western album we did a rogers and hearts album we did a lot of those type things because that's basically who we were as a group before we became famous as a as a pop stars uh tell me about you know you were on so many tv shows and um you know ed sullivan and, and you must have ended up working with some of those old-time stars that you as a kid had grown up seeing on tv or you know hearing on the radio tell me something about one of those experiences well, see, a lot of people say that even about today's artists. They say, why don't you sing with... 
we're we're the oldest stars now that you were talking about. Did we ever sing with older stars? So now for this generation, we're the older stars. They don't do that as much as we did when we were coming up. We sang with people. We did. We were on Sammy Davis's show. Uh, we did the Las Vegas. Uh, we sang with the Andrews Sisters. We did shows with Bob Hope. We did shows with Pearl Bailey, with Lena Horne. Uh, we worked with all of the great legendary stars that we had grown up listening to. Today, for some reason, they don't do that as much. And, it, it, you know, you see the young people, which I'm very proud of, that they've carried on this legacy and making more money than we ever made. But they kind of leave us out of the scenario, which when we were coming up, we were not left out uh, with the older stars. And uh, that's something I think that they need to change. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, so, yeah, we work with some great people. I mean, one of the persons I really enjoyed working with was Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, he was absolutely wonderful. He was just a wonderful guy. Um, Diane Carroll, we work with a lot as well. Yeah, that sounds so exciting just to be part mm-hmm. of, of that part. Yeah, that huge Hollywood thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, it doesn't get bigger than that. Uh, the mm-hmm. Supremes kind of eventually finally end in 1976. Why, uh, why call an end to it at that point? Well, first of all, Florence was no longer in the group in the late 60s. Diane left in 70. And then I was I had to bring in other girls. I mean, I didn't have to, but I did, because I did not want to end there. Um, and so I had some beautiful ladies, talented ladies, Jean Terrell, Sherry Payne, uh, Linda Lawrence, and Suze Green, all at different times, of course, <laughs> joined the group. And so I eventually said, you know, it, it, this changing of the arms, uh, you know, the guards, is just not happening because we three were the ones who made the history. We three were the ones who, uh, you know, be, who, 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 you know, were famous. So my continuing on bringing in new girls, Eric, because... It just wasn't, you know, I think it was just time. It's time to quit, time to end it, because, uh, you know, I didn't want to spoil our history, and it was beginning to feel like that. Um, so I ended it in 1976 and started singing on my own, uh, and it's taken me all these years. I'm 75 years old now. It's taken me all these years to finally learn how to sing again, which I've hopefully I've done. <laughs> And uh, people will see that tonight, of course. Right. And, uh, you know, so it, sometimes you just have to know when to, you know, they say a fighter needs to know when to get out of, out of the ring. And <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was time then, so that's why I disbanded the group at that point. One of the things you've done um, since then is you've been a vocal advocate against uh, what I would call fake bands, you know, bands who have mm-hmm. no original members or mm-hmm. or just completely, you know, made up versions of bands. Uh, where, how did that start? Well, I'm one of the I'm one of the artists. There are many of us artists who have been out there on that trail, trying to stop people from stealing our famous names. And it's and they have started, you know, fake groups as you call them, bogus group as we call them, have come up and stole. I'll just outright say it, you know, stolen our names. It's almost like they say, um, uh, uh, I forgot what they say. Anyway, it's you know, it's like we, people were stealing our histories and calling themselves the Supremes. They were calling themselves uh, 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 the, 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 the the coasters and the drifters, and they were so young. It's like you couldn't possibly have made those records. How could you have made those records? You know, those right. are. 
from the 50s. So anyway, a lot of us artists got together and decided, and we marched on Capitol Hill, and we decided that we had to get some laws passed to stop people from stealing our names. Identity theft is the same as identity theft. So we went, we went to Congress, and we got them to pass the bill in about 35, 40 states, I think, today. And the bill is called Truth in, in, in Music. So unless you were there to record that music, you cannot be a group to go out and call yourself by that famous name. So hope that's uh, that's something that's going on. You started so young, and you've had. Uh, I mean, you you know, you were. Everybody knows the word Motown, and there is no mm-hmm. doubt that the Supremes were the most successful Motown act. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of. Is it a little bit mind blowing, or is it just ah, that's just I just you know had some good breaks and made the best of it, or how do, how do you? How do you feel? Well, probably different now than I did a long time ago because there were many, many artists at Motown who were huge and probably personified more of the Motown sound than we did, like Stevie Wonder, you know, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross. I mean, there were many people there who are, you know, major forces in the music industry. As a supreme, I, I, I'm very happy that I finally have that feeling that, yeah, we contributed quite we, Large, I mean, just huge amounts of everything to to the music industry. So I'm happy. Uh, I now see how relevant we were or are to American history in terms of music. I'm very happy to have been a part of that and to have been a supreme. So I'm, yeah. But long time ago, I was just happy to be up there on stage singing, singing. You know. <laughs> You just didn't just didn't think it just didn't occur to you to think about your place in history or your part of the soundtrack. Yeah, you know? No, you know, so busy just enjoying and doing it. And you know, sometimes that's important because if you think too much about who you are, what you've done, it, you know, it becomes more important than really enjoying the enjoyment of what you're doing. Um, so I've always been the kind of person I enjoyed what I was doing first. Uh, well, tonight, folks can see you out at the St. George Theater with Martha Reeves and the Vandells. Mm-hmm. What's your show like these days? I mean, I assume it's just a mm-hmm. celebration of, of mm-hmm. this wonderful music. Mm-hmm. Well, my show today, I have several. To, now I'm doing just the rock, the rock and roll show. In fact, Martha Reeves of the Vandellas also, she's doing, she'll be doing her Dancing in the Streets, you know, and Heat Wave, and I'll be doing Reflections and, and all those kind of songs. So we're, we're really celebrating Motown's 60th anniversary this year doing a lot of uh, rock and roll concerts. So it's more of a fun, 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 fun night. My jazz clubs, uh, which I did last week, are more of just sit back and, and just enjoy the beautiful ballads, you know, whatever. So there are different shows. Tonight is going to be fun, fun, fun. <laughs> uh, folks can get more information, of course, at your website, MaryWilson.com, and there's stuff about your books, and there's videos and all kinds of stuff to mm-hmm. read. And uh, Well, mm-hmm. th- it's such an interesting story, and you know, Motown is such a part of the culture and American history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's always mm-hmm. interesting to hear about it. Uh, Mary Wilson, mm-hmm. thanks, sir, for visiting with us this morning. <laughs> uh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you.
Okay, we got the ending. Go back.
in the last two years, <laughs> okay? Not all. Pulling me closer, closer to your And who the Beatles like this number very much. Uh, we, you know, we got letters and everything with telling us how much they really enjoyed stopping the name of love. This is Florence of the Supreme Burgers. If you'd like to join the Scotty Regan Burger Club, send your name and address to Burger Club, WKNR, Box 1300, Detroit. Now, this is where you come in. The Scotty Regan Sing Along with the Supremes Contest. Full details tonight, 8 o'clock, right here, WKNR. Understand? Yes. This is Scotty. <laughs> Congratulations, Steve. Thank you. You're, you're more than welcome. Oh, thank you. Let's listen to you sing for a second, okay? Okay. I'm feeling so deep under. Should I leave? 
yourself on the radio. It's funny. You know, you're not, I've never heard myself before like that, and it really sounds funny. You're not used to it, you know? It sounds a lot different than that. Uh, yeah, yes, it does. <laughs> Hey. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Very, very good. That's good. What's happening? Well, we're having a mellow time out here in Vegas. I bet you are. Is that your first time to Vegas? Yeah. How do you like it? Well, the crowds have been beautiful, and, and we've had back shows every night, so we have to like it. Hey, that's great. Yeah, let me let you speak to somebody else. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ah, ha, ha. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. <laughs>